You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects, and today is no exception. Today, we're talking about two different questions. First off, what do we do about the claim of Catholic pedophile priest? And second, are homosexuals born that way? Our guest is Reverend D. Paul Solens, Research Professor of Sociology and Director of the Leo Initiative for Catholic Social Research at the Catholic University of America and Senior Research Associate of the Ruth Institute. He has written four books and over 150 journal articles, book chapters, and research reports on issues of faith and culture. He recently published Isn't Catholic Clergy Sex Abuse Related to Homosexual Priest? Danish Act Regulations May Improve Post-Abortion Mental Health Risk, Invisible Victims, Delayed Onset, Depression among adults with same-sex parents, abortion, substance abuse, and mental health in the early adulthood, 13-year longitudinal evidence from the United States, and Keeping the Vow, the untold story of married Catholic priests, and co-edited with Pier Paolo Donati of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, whose name I probably just butchered, so my apologies, for Conjugal Family, an Irreplaceable Resource for Society, Father Sorens is also a director of a Summer Institute of Catholic School of Art, a member of a board of a Society of Catholic Social Scientists, the Center for Family and Human Rights, and the Natural Family Journal, a fellow of the Marriage and Religion Research Institute, associate pastor of the Church of St. Mark the Evangelist, Hyattsville, Maryland, and, not least, a fourth-degree member of the Knights of Columbus. Formerly Episcopalian, Father Sorens is a married Catholic priest of an interracial family of three children to adopted. So, uh, Father Sorens, welcome to a Deeper Waters podcast. Very happy to be with you this afternoon, Nick. Can you tell us, in case my audience doesn't know much about you, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Well, let me just uh, talk about how I became a Catholic priest. I understand your audience is mostly Protestants. and I don't uh, have any hard evidence of that, but I suspect that. <laughs> okay, great. I, I should say, from your introduction, just for the record now, mm-hmm. I am not a... Catholic pedophile priest. I'm a Catholic uh, priest, but okay. uh, not at all a pedophile. Um, I hope not. <laughs> no, not at all. My 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 wife would be um, a little surprised mm-hmm. at that attribution for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I was raised uh, a Protestant, uh, an evangelical Protestant. My father was a Baptist minister. He's a graduate of uh, Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. He was very conservative. Mm-hmm. You would even say fundamentalist. Uh, Protestant mm. uh, uh, context and setting. Um, mm. And so, uh, at the age of four, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Uh, and that was a real experience for me, and it's still true, as true today as it was then. Um, as I grew, uh, I began to kind of explore the boundaries of Protestantism. Uh, I went to a Wheaton College in Illinois, uh, graduated from there, studied philosophy. 
uh, and uh, came out uh, still a strong Protestant. Um, and then uh, over the years, uh, I felt a call to ministry, so I went to seminary. It was in seminary uh, that I first came in contact with the Episcopal Church in a serious way. Uh, I was assigned to a kind of evangelical Episcopal Church to do my fieldwork in seminary. Uh, and I remember discovering the beauty and the power of liturgical worship. Uh, now, many Protestants, that just sounds like something uh, boring and irrelevant, but uh, I found that after I had worshipped in the uh, liturgical way that the church uh, worshipped uh, for 2,000 years, um, there was something powerful in that, uh, in the presentation of Christ and the, in the form of the Eucharist, what how Catholics call the Mass. Uh, and so, I became an Episcop Episcopalian and eventually was ordained an Episcopal priest. Uh, my wife was a Methodist. Uh, she converted to the Episcopal Church and we started our ministry in the Episcopal Church. Shortly after we were married, we uh, wanted to have a family. So we tried to have a family. Uh, and uh, after three years of attempting, we couldn't have children. Um, and uh, if you've been infertile for three years, you're medical insurance will cover um, it, uh, interventions like in vitro fertilization or other infertility uh, practices. Uh, and so we went to the uh, in vitro clinic uh, and um, we uh, went through the uh, information session. We learned about all that was going to happen and we came out and my wife and I had extremely different reactions to the presentation. Uh, I was excited because here we were finally going to be able to have the family that we always wanted to have. I, I forgot to say that uh, before we got married, we talked. We had to talk about how many children do you want to have. Um, and um, I wanted to have uh, a dozen children. My wife was You want to go small, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I always thought children were a great thing. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Happy is the man who has his quiver full. So I wanted a, a full quiver if, if God would bless me for that. Well, my, my wife didn't fixate on the number 12, but she was certainly open to have uh, a lot of kids. And she, her attitude was, is whatever God gives us, that's, that's what we'll have. Well, it turned out, uh, at least initially, God gave us none. Um, and that was very, very troubling and traumatic. So we went to explore this in vitro um, procedure. Now... To Episcopalians and to many Protestants, there's nothing wrong with uh, trying in vitro fertilization. But uh, we discovered, um, uh, when I, came, I was very excited about it, my wife was very disturbed by it. Now, my wife is, is very spiritually sensitive, much more than I am. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I don't know, but I just can't do this with my body. It, it, it doesn't feel right. And I thought, well, she's just having one of those uh, emotional things, and I, I will I will research this, and I will talk to her and show her the reasons why there's nothing at all wrong with in vitro fertilization. And as I researched it, I found out that, um, you know, to, to produce uh, a, a child by means of in vitro fertilization, they have to produce... Uh, 
dozens, uh, sometimes many, m- many scores of um, of actual fetuses who were then discarded in the process. So one live in vitro child might uh, be preceded by many discarded, they called it, children. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was very strongly pro-life, so was my wife. Mm-hmm. And I could see through that rhetoric. What was happening was they, they were having fertilized children uh, that they were aborting, uh, destroying in the womb in the process of this. So I, I came out of my research trip saying, there's no way I could do this. And so I had to say to my wife, you know what, I, I thought you were totally wrong, but I, I find out you are completely right. This is this was by no means the first time I had ever had this. I was about to say, I'm right. sure that was a totally unique experience. <laughs> no, not you. at all. Not at all. Um, but what the other thing I found was that of all the churches that I knew, there was only one church that really had never accepted the lies of in vitro fertilization and had a strong, well-developed ethical argument against it, and that was the Catholic Church. And at the time, I had the typical anti-Catholic prejudices that are pervasive in Protestantism. Uh, And so I thought, well, these Catholics, they can't, you know, I don't know, they must have accidentally got this one right. But, you know, all the other crazy things that they have, you know, they they worship statues and they 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 worship Mary and they have all these weird beliefs. Um, uh, So. Uh, I just kind of set that aside. But then we tried to have uh, uh, children. We're still trying to have children. And what I discovered from that research was uh, what the Catholics called natural family planning, um, which is a a process by which uh, couples can inhibit their fertility uh, by timing when they have sex relations uh, in the course of a month. Uh, some people deride this as, as a rhythm method, but it's it's way beyond that. It's much more sophisticated than that. And we're able today to measure the fertile periods of, of the woman's ovulation cycle very precisely. Uh, and it can be a very effective way of preventing fertility, but it can also be a very effective way of pre- promoting fertility. You just do it, in a sense, backwards. Uh, you have your sex relations when you're most fertile, not when you're least fertile. So that's what we did. We went to the natural family planning classes and learned how to do that. Um, and, our, and of course, natural family planning classes are populated by lots of young, vital, faithful Catholic couples. Gung-ho young Catholics. So we got to know a lot of these young Catholics. And we, we found a lot of um, common... Sensi- sensibilities with regard to to the, uh, the worship and service of God uh, and uh, to uh, even to many of our beliefs. The thing that separates Catholic f- from Protestant is not um, you know hundred percent of our beliefs. It's really only maybe five or ten percent of our beliefs. We agree on probably ninety percent of uh, the revelation that God that God left us in Jesus Christ. Um, and so that was another step kind of into the Catholic faith. But the next thing that happened uh, was a miracle. Uh, because we, we tried uh, natural family planning that didn't, didn't produce a child for us. So we said, okay, we're going to adopt a child. 
Um, and so we um, went to adopt a, um, a child. He, he was a, um, a eight-year-old special needs boy uh, from Korea. Um, and we went through the procedure. Uh, by the way, it was with a Protestant um, uh, adoption agency. And um, we um, went to the airport uh, to meet our son. Uh, they had an escort fly him over from Korea. Uh, we came home. And that night, we put him to bed. And then we, uh, uh, we I should say, celebrated this wonderful thing in our life in a marital way. Um, uh, I can't imagine what you have in mind. <laughs> no, I, I hope that wasn't, you know, too much euphemism there. Um, and that night when we did that, we conceived a child. The mm. first and only time we've successfully conceived a child that, that uh, eventually was born. So nine months later, uh, we had two children. We had a nine-year-old. And we had an infant, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, God uh, blessed us. Uh, we think he, for a number of reasons, he blessed us. But one way he blessed us was also to nudge us a little more further uh, into understanding the beauty and the fullness of Catholic truth. Uh, and so we started our family life. Now it was kind of funny because at that time we'd only been married five years, and we had a nine-year-old. Uh, so it was. It, it led to some uh, explanations at time, but he was from Korea. So once people took a look at him, they understood understood he was he was adopted, uh, and we um, kind of got launched into parenthood uh, very quickly for that. Mm -hmm. um, at, in uh, 1997, um, the uh, summer readings uh, in the common lectionary take you through, took us through. The Gospel of John. It does that every three years. I think it's year C, but I, it could be one of the other years. Um, and we go through the Bread of Life discourses at the beginning of John. And um, in, in 1997, I began to read those Bread of Life discourses with new eyes. Uh, and I started to seriously consider and look into uh, why it is that the Catholic Church had so much right uh, relative to Protestantism. One of the big issues for me as a Protestant was the status of Holy Scripture, um, because I thought, well, the, the Catholic Church is unbiblical. Well, there's so many things in the Bible that they uh, displace or oppose or set aside. Um, and I have learned that, in fact, it, that is emphatically not true, um, that there's many blinders that Protestants have when they read the Scriptures. But one of the things that I came to realize about Scripture is that the apostles in the early church, if we want to have a, a you know, a Bible church, a church of, of the uh, Bible era, uh, it, it would be a church where they didn't have a Bible, uh, because the Bible was compiled from a collection of letters and other writings over time. And the, the, um, the Bible as we know it today, the, I should say the New Testament as we know it today, uh, was not fully compiled uh, for several hundred years. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the year 381 that we had the final canon of Scripture. And the canon means the the rule of what's in uh, considered to be truly inspired. Now, they had hundreds of other documents that were claiming to be 
uh, inspired by God or inspired by Christ. And um, and so they had to choose which were the true ones and which were the false ones. Uh, many of the heresies would uh, be based on scripture, but it was a, but there were different scriptures. We still have that today, right? We have the the uh, the Mormon uh, faith, which has its own scriptures. Uh, we have the Jehovah's Witness, which have the, their own uh, translations and scriptures, um, and try to prove things that uh, are uh, rebutted by a recourse to the true scriptures that we have received uh, from the from the apostles. Um, and so I realized that the holy scriptures didn't create the church. But the church created the holy scriptures. Uh, we have the scriptures today because there was a church council. At that time, it would be what we would call the Catholic Church that decided that these were the true um, writings that were inspired by God or by Christ. Uh, you know, Martin Luther didn't agree with that because it violated his theology. He took the book of James and, and uh, cut it out of the Bible didn't translate it. He called it an epistle of straw because James talked about um, faith uh, it, uh, and works going together. Uh, James says, uh, you say you have faith and I have works. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Um, and uh, Martin Luther didn't like that idea because it, he thought it was too Catholic. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it was um, uh, offensive to his belief in sola fide, faith alone, scripture alone, but he didn't take all of scripture, just the part of it that, that was consistent with his beliefs. Uh, and so, as I looked into these things more and more, I read um, some great converts to the Catholic faith, uh, G.K. Chesterton, for example, um, and uh, John Henry Newman, uh, and I, I began to have my eyes open. But as we... Uh, uh, went through those scriptures, those passages of the bread of life in the Gospel of John, uh, I began to understand what Jesus said when he said, unless you uh, eat my body, uh, you have no part of me. Uh, and it was extremely offensive to the original hearers. Uh, it's extremely offensive to those who don't understand it and believe it today, but he didn't back down from those, those claims. Uh, and so, I, be, I came to understand that it's really true uh, that uh, Jesus left us a sacrament, uh, a trace of his reality and his presence that we can receive uh, in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and I began to understand the, the, the presence, the real true presence of Christ in the Eucharist in a new way. Now, that's that, in my mind, is the main belief that distinguishes Catholics from Protestants. Protestants believe, there are a few exceptions to this, but Protestants believe that um, when we take communion, we're doing something that is a memorial, a symbol, that represents Christ. The, the bread represents his body. Catholics believe the bread really becomes his body. Uh, and that when we receive that bread, we're not just receiving bread, we're receiving Christ himself. Uh, and, um, and so I came to believe that. Well, when I came to believe that, it, it made me a Catholic intellectually, and it wasn't long after that when I realized that I needed to 
become a Catholic um, institutional affiliate. I, I resigned my uh, my parish uh, in the Episcopal Church and um, and joined the Catholic Church. And um, the Catholic Church at that time had a program that uh, incoming Episcopalian priests um, could possibly be ordained as Catholic priests. Uh, so I I went through that program and. Uh, completed it and was uh, ordained in 2002 as a Catholic priest um, and have um, been uh, happily serving at St. Mark the Evangelist Catholic Church in Hyattsville, Maryland ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking a few things here. Sure. First off, uh, maybe sometime I should also have you on like maybe next year during the month of Reformation if you want to have a debate with a Protestant you can discuss Catholic Protestant issues some. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Yes. It would. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say I'm not Catholic but at the same time I'm not anti-Catholic. So I'm sure you recognize the distinction. Sure. Yeah. Um, some other things I was saying. First off, you said your son has special needs. Uh, what What is the nature of a special needs? I'm curious. Well, um, he had a special need at that time, mm -hmm. and, and mostly because he was eight years old. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to um, for an eight-year-old child to be adopted than for an infant. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but mostly that that was the the nature of his uh, special needs. Okay. I will say that we have another child who's adopted. Mm -hmm. We had the that the one child uh, that we conceived when we uh, adopted our oldest son. Um, and then uh, we thought, well, gee, we'll be able to have more kids, but we weren't. And so uh, about uh, six, seven years later, uh, we said we'd like, to ha we'd like to adopt another child. We had two boys, so we wanted to adopt a girl. So we uh, went to China and adopted um, one of the girls uh, in China. You may be aware that uh, China at that time uh, had a one-child policy. Uh, and so, if people had a second child, they would often uh, give birth in secret and then uh, abandon that child at an orphanage or a social service agency. And almost all of those second uh, children were girls. Um, and um, uh, and so, we went over and we adopted one of those girls. Now, th that child was a special needs child because she had um, what's called uh, ingrown uh, thumbs. Her th her thumbs were planted into the palms of her hands mm. uh, in both in both cases. They 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 also call it wind blown hands because the the fingers kind of go off to the side too. Mm. Uh, and so uh, we adopted that child. She had to have um, a series of surgeries. I think about eight surgeries uh, over the course of about ten years to correct that. Uh, but it, it was fully corrected, um, and she's a. a beautiful young woman today and you know you you would never know kind of what she'd been through um in in her upbringing so that that's another that's probably more in line with what you were thinking about uh, in terms of special needs yeah i i always get curious when special yeah. needs are mentioned my wife and i both have asperger's so oh, okay it, it kind of hits home every single time when i hear about yeah. special needs yeah uh, and when you're talking about conceiving on the night you brought the kid home, I was saying, I'm not sure which is more miraculous, mm -hmm. that you conceived that night or that you were able to that night with a new kid in your house. <laughs> yes, well, I, you know, the doctor said there might have been something to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, when, when there's a child there, it, it mm -hmm. um, stimulates 
uh, maternal uh, instincts or hormones or mm-hmm. other things that might have uh, enhanced ovulation. But I honestly think that's just a guess because, you know, we, we, yeah. we, we tried many more times where there was a child in the house and were not successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really believe uh, it was God's yeah. grace and blessing for us. Yeah. And, I, no idea. and as for liturgical worship, my wife's interest in joining the Orthodox Church. So we go to an Orthodox Church and a Protestant Church together. And oh, when I'm, my goodness. When I'm at the Orthodox Church, I enjoy the homilies very much. The priest mm-hmm. and I get along great. We have this joke that there's a, a Bible so you go to every Wednesday and he'll ask a question. I'll raise my hand and say, not you, Nick, someone else. Because he knows <laughs> I know what I'm talking about there. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just one of those people that maybe it's just me, but liturgy just doesn't do it for me. But then, to be fair, mm-hmm. I'm at the Protestant church. Much of the worship songs and such don't do anything for me either. There yeah. are a few exceptions. Start singing right. holy, 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 and I sit down and awe immediately at that point. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, so let's get into the subject matter here. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is a Catholic, the so-called pedophile priest. I don't know whatever term to use. And now some of my listeners are probably might be wondering, look, this is a problem for the Catholics. The Catholics need to clear, clean this up themselves. Why should I, if I'm a Protestant, care about this situation? Yeah, sure. Well, um, <laughs> it, it, the, the term pedophile priest mm-hmm. is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, because most of the um, abusive priests in the Catholic Church uh, did not abuse children, uh, but abused older boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, really, it, it would be more appropriate to talk about homosexual priests. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, the abuse of children uh, in various ways um, is endemic uh, among clergy in every religious setting. Um, and the rate of uh, uh, sexual abuse of children uh, is lower among Catholic priests than it is among Protestant ministers. The mm. difference is this, that among Protestant ministers, uh, most of the children that are abused by men are girls, uh, whereas among Catholic priests, most of them are boys. Mm-hmm. Um, the highest uh, uh, rate of sex abuse of children in any institutional setting in the United States uh, is in families, um, mm. and partic- particularly uh, step-parent families where there's a stepfather present. Mm. Uh, government research has shown that the, the most dangerous place for a girl uh, in um, uh, with regard to uh, being abused by someone uh, is to be in the care of a, of a stepfather. Um, so, um, if you think about the fact that Catholic priests, by definition, do not have families, right? Uh, they're celibate, except for, you know, myself and a few very rare exceptions, Catholic priests are celibate. Uh, so, they don't have access to children nearly as much as Protestant ministers do when they live in a setting with, with other children. So, there's a, a lot of sex abuse in the Protestant church. Mm-hmm. It's not um, publicized as much for various reasons, um, and so it's not, um, it, it doesn't make the newspapers nearly as much, uh, but um, uh, it's 
it is more common and more prevalent. Now, it, it is somewhat more common and more prevalent among Protestants. Uh, mm. it, it's not like many times the rate, uh, as you find in the Catholic Church. But we, ha we should also say that in some of the secular institutions of our society, there are many, many times the rate of uh, abuse of children sexually as there are in any religious setting. In fact, ministers uh, have a pretty good uh, record and reputation overall with regard to uh, any kind of misconduct or abuse uh, of children. Um, the, um, the highest, uh, one of the highest rates of misconduct um, is in um, public schools. Yes. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, we had a report that came out last year on uh, sex abuse by Catholic priests, and there was a lot of um, media negative Catholic Church uh, because of all these misbehaving, uh, abusive uh, uh, Catholic priests. Uh, and they reported uh, a certain number, I don't remember the exact number, uh, of um, sex abuse cases over a 40-year period that happened within uh, certain counties in Pennsylvania. Uh, and one man did uh, research in those counties and found that in those same counties, they had had just as many cases in the public school systems in the past two years uh, as what was in the Catholic Church in the past 40 years. So the, the public school system is uh, rife with um, uh, sexual aggression or sexual endangerment of children uh, in, in many ways. That used to not make the papers ever. It's starting to make the papers more because it's getting so out of hand. And, uh, of course, you can't sue the public school systems in many cases. Um, and so you don't have the financial incentives for victims to uh, kind of um, uh, promote or publicize or, or come forward with their claims. Uh, you do have those financial incentives with the Catholic Church uh, in a number of ways. Uh, and so that also, I think, contributes to uh, the perception that, you know, uh, Catholic priests are all sex abusers or, or something of that nature. Mm. Um, okay. Well, I mean, let's be clear also on one thing, that wherever this happens, Catholic Church, <laughs> Protestant Church, Orthodox Church, public school system, family life, every single case, of course, is wicked and evil and needs to be yes, stopped immediately. I think that leads to probably object concern that a lot of Protestants have because the idea also is that there's a cover-up going on, these priests are often yeah. whisked away to another yeah. congregation or what have you, and the cycle repeats itself, and that, that's at least yeah. what we hear. I mean, is that accurate, or what's going on? Yeah, unfortunately, that is accurate, and, and that's, that's a terrible, uh, horrendous, uh, uh, re repulsive mm -hmm. uh, kind of, kind of uh, behavior that's gone on for, for too long. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the Protestants are right to criticize that about the Catholic Church. Most Catholics I know would mm -hmm. join in with with that criticism. I certainly would. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, our our bishops, our leaders, uh, the Pope himself, uh, ha have really done a very poor job uh, mm -hmm. protecting children. Uh, and uh, there's been a lot of misbehavior that's gone on, uh, and it, and I'm afraid might still be going on. We haven't gotten to the bottom of it. We don't have the answers that we need to have. Uh, and we are still 
uh, struggling and uh, contending over this issue with our leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, I have engaged in a lot of that contention myself. Uh, I, I'm a um, research uh, scientist and I have studied mm -hmm. uh, and produced a couple of um, studies that show the extent of the abuse that's gone on and some of the cover-up that's gone on. Um, and um, and I, I, I pray and hope that uh, the Lord will shake our church enough to, uh, to, to bring us some, some honest shepherds, uh, mm -hmm. some men of, of faith and integrity. Uh, more than what we have in many cases right now, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree with, with that criticism. And um, if, if anyone, Protestant or of whatever faith, says, well, you know, I don't really trust the Catholic Church. Uh, I am not sure I want to want to join right now because of because of that um uh, i i can't i don't have an argument against that i, I kind of agree with that i can understand mm -hmm. that i yeah. could say you know don't don't reject the truth uh, that christ presents because of the 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 uh, the sinfulness of his representatives and his ministers yeah but that's not you know that that's we shouldn't have to make an excuse like that yeah uh, I, I have to agree with that as someone who studies history, my main focus area is New Testament, I say, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, and that fact isn't disputed by so-and-so Christian being a jerk. For right, instance. That's there you the go. main question. Uh, that's a good way to say it. Right. Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read, and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters Podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. Now, I, I, I liked what, uh, what you said was just really an honest admission. I think much of my audience will appreciate that. And when you start to about the Pope, I was kind of nodding alongside with you because mm -hmm. when... Uh, when this Pope first came to power, Pope Francis, mm -hmm. my wife and I, even though we're not Catholics, we were watching, and we both thought, I really like this guy. He seems to know what he's doing, but mm -hmm. lately we've been getting more and more disappointed. And mm -hmm. sadly, I think the Babylon Bee got it right in one of their articles yeah. where he said, Pope Francis says he'll address sex abuse scandal as soon as he's done talking about climate change. Yeah, right. Well, yep. Uh, it, I think Pope Francis has uh, been open to a lot of criticism, and mostly because people he he doesn't seem to clearly indicate uh, where he is on certain issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and he'll say one thing one day, and then a couple of days later he'll say something else, and it's hard to put them together. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I I think that with Francis. Um, um, one of the things that we have to realize is that um, John Paul II um, was a theologian mm -hmm. uh, and, and a, a Ph.D. Um, mm -hmm. teacher in a seminary, followed by Benedict, who was a, a world-class philosopher. I, I'm sorry, John Paul II was a world-class philosopher. Benedict was a theologian. Uh, these were both uh, very highly trained academic minds that uh, could articulate clearly and 
and uh, and valued consistency in what they did. Uh, Francis is not that. He is a pastor, uh, and he's going to speak to the situation that he's seeing, and sometimes it's not going to sound like what he says somewhere else because he's thinking of a different situation. Uh, I think of a certain president of the United States who also has this this quality. You know, he'll uh, he'll say something one week, and then the next week he might say something different. I do think that there's a coherence under there, but it just it, he's not able to articulate it uh, mm-hmm. at times, and sometimes he's he's still thinking something through, right, mm-hmm. uh, as as things are going on. Uh, if you look at what Francis says uh, about, um, the, let's say, the clergy sex abuse and homosexual priests, um, it, 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 what he says is uh, strong and good, uh, and uh, in in my view is uh, is a is wonderful and and uh, hard hitting and and gets to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that it's often not reported in the media, um, and and then it's mixed in, as you say, with some of these other things. So, so it's uh, it, it's kind of hard to, to uh, um, sift all of that out. Another mm-hmm. problem is that Francis um, doesn't speak English too much. He mostly speaks Spanish when he's not talking Italian, of course, being in Rome, and um, and so if you if you read or speak Spanish, uh, you can get him. Get his direct um, message uh, that that he's putting out, but if you read it um, in English, it's always been translated, and sometimes it's not been translated very accurately. Sometimes the translator has has a, his own bias and kind of you know puts that reads that into the translation a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Francis is really clear that um, uh, sex abuse is a, a major problem in the church. Um, he has uh, appointed commissions to uh, address the problem forcefully, uh, and in a number of other settings, he has he has done that. He has canned bishops. He has called clerics to account. He has rearranged uh, this, the uh, structures of authority in the church uh, to address the issue. He has not yet done that in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hold out hope that he will do that at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Francis has also said, in no uncertain terms, that we should not be ordaining uh, homosexual Catholic priests. Mm-hmm. That action goes to the root of the problem. Um, and Francis is stronger on that point than his predecessors, Benedict or John Paul II. Um, but you wouldn't know it if you just read the uh, read the regular media. So Francis is a little bit of an enigma, but. Uh, I, I think he's he's got many many good gifts to bring to the church, um, and that we will uh, be well served um, to to follow him uh, and to support him uh, and to pray for him and and um, uh, and, and be guided uh, by his wisdom. Um, but um, but I I know that uh, there are a number of uh, persons and an awful lot of Catholics uh, who are not. All that happy with Francis. Yeah, uh, when when I was born, it was just before Reagan was elected. So I've oh, pretty much yeah. I've pretty much known of John Paul II as Pope my whole life, mm-hmm. nearly, and till you know two thousand five. Yeah, but yeah. I I've seen a whole lot of controversy surrounding Francis, but yeah, we're not here to talk about Francis. One. Yeah. One thing that has been suggested about this, that, that 
people think could help is where maybe the Catholic Church should just lift the ban on celibacy for priests in yeah. the church. Uh, I mean, is that a serious option being discussed? And what do you think about that as an option? <laughs> Well, uh, it, it is being discussed more today than it was um, maybe a decade ago, uh, and um, part of that could be attributed to Francis. It's not totally clear. Um, we had a synod of bishops recently um, from the region of the Amazon in South America, and um, one of the proposals that was made was that in that region, it would be... Um, practical uh, to ordain uh, older married men uh, to serve in a limited capacity uh, to do things that priests could do because mm. there weren't that many priests in that area. Mm. The Amazon is a very, very large area uh, and there are not very many priests and, and consequently uh, people often cannot receive the Eucharist um, uh, every week or sometimes every month, um, and uh, so having having more ministers uh, would be better in that region. Well, um, it you know it it's something that was discussed. We don't know if it's a decision that will be made. If it is a decision that's made, it's it won't be anything new. The churches um, in times past uh, also permitted uh, men in very um, uh, unique circumstances. Uh, to be ordained priests, despite the fact that they uh, are already married. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and of course, I'm one of them. Um, so, let me talk about what it is it, it, uh, when the church ordains a married priest. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, as a married priest, uh, I'm not exactly on the same level or status uh, as a celibate priest uh, here in the Latin Rite. Uh, and there are a number of things that people uh, often don't understand. Um, one of them is um, that I am. I have. I was given the permission to be ordained a priest, despite the fact that I was already married and had children. Um, and that has happened occasionally uh, in every age of the Catholic Church. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a time in the Catholic Church where there haven't been a few men who were already married who were uh, subsequently ordained priests. In fact, today, and for the last thousand years, that has been the regular practice in many parts of the world. Uh, And we have even representatives of them in the United States. So we have the Ukrainian Rite Catholics, we have the Melkite Rite Catholics, we have the the, uh, Greek Catholics, they're like the Greek Orthodox, only they're the, the uh, branch of the Orthodox that stayed in communion with the Pope, and so they're Catholic Greek Orthodox. Um, it turns out that of the, uh, that the Catholic Church is composed of somewhere between 25 and 30 um, rites, uh, semi-autonomous bodies of, um, of uh, churches that worship according to their own tradition and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of dozen of these or more. And of all of those, all of them 
have married priests at some level of the church except the Latin rite. The Latin rite is the largest rite by far, far larger than all the others put together. But those other ones are still there. Uh, and so, for instance, in the Ukrainian rite, uh, the, the norm is for uh, a man uh, to get married, uh, either in seminary or before seminary, and then he's ordained a priest, and a married priest understands that he will be assigned to a parish and will serve parishes uh, and will not have any career advancement beyond the parish. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the higher level functionaries in those churches uh, are celibate. So, in most of the Catholic Church, we have celibate bishops and often other celibate leaders, but the pastors of parishes, the men who do the pastoring on the ground, are married. And so, they live in the same state of life, as it were, as the persons that they serve. Mm -hmm. uh, and they find that that's a pretty good arrangement in those settings. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, do, I, do I think that, uh, I'm saying all this just to say that it's not such a radical, mm -hmm. strange thing to have married uh, priests in the Catholic Church. When uh, One distinction that should be made, however, and I've been carefully trying to word this uh, to say it right, uh, is that we have always had married men who have been ordained mm -hmm. uh, in the Catholic faith, but we have never, not even once to my knowledge, done the opposite, that we have had a man who was ordained who was then permitted to be married. Uh, and that's because of our belief that in ordination, a man is um, um, consecrated God. I was going to say formed to Christ. Uh, he's, he's, he is sort of molded to Christ ontologically uh, mm -hmm. so that his uh, person and his state of life uh, becomes... Uh, committed, and I would I would then say your phrase consecrated to Christ uh, at that moment and at that at that time from henceforth. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the the Bible says that for a man to remain in the state in which he is called, um, and so uh, if he's married at that time, then he can remain married. Uh, if he's not married, then he can't become married. Now. When I became a Catholic priest, I was permitted to become a priest in the marriage that I have. It doesn't mean that I can marry again. Uh, and so, I uh, am, am committed to what's called secondary celibacy. Uh, every, mar every married Catholic priest and Catholic deacon uh, make this commitment. Uh, so that if it's for uh, my wife was to, God forbid, uh, pre-decease me, um, then I, I would uh, live a life of a, a chaste or celibate Catholic priest just like any other Catholic priest. Um, I, I think that um, the, the presence of celibate priests uh, are a great gift to the Catholic Church. There's a reason why the Latin Rite Catholic Church it has become much, much larger, has evangelized the world while the, the, all of the rites that have married priests have not done that. Um, there's something about uh, a commitment to a life of celibacy that frees a man to serve the kingdom of God in a way that being married does not. St. Saint, Saint Paul, you know, advised that uh, Christians don't get married 
He said, I, I, I wish that you would all be as I am. He said, it's not a sin to marry. This is, uh, what is it, First Corinthians 7? He says, yeah. it's not a, not a sin to marry. Uh, but if a man gets married, then he's going to be more concerned about the things of this world and less concerned about the things of God. And so he, he recommends it. it. We would call it today a council of perfection. Uh, it's not something that's required. It's not a sin to get married. Um, but it is something that uh, um, is, is better, that kind of uh, um, uh, turbocharges our faith and our ability to serve God, if we can do that uh, in a way that's um, mm. unencumbered uh, by a marriage relationship. Now, um, there's another reason uh, for celibate. There are several other reasons for celibate priests, but one I want to mention is that when a man um, uh, becomes a priest, and commits himself to celibacy, um, he does that by re specifically renouncing the possibility of a family for the sake of Christ. Uh, and when he does that, uh, I believe that God, in return, conveys upon that man the capacity for a spiritual, um, charismatic um, paternity with his people. He's able to be a father to all of the families that are in his church because he uh, doesn't have his own particular family that he has to to uh, attend to. Uh, and so he becomes a great blessing to every family in the church in a very, very profound and special way. Uh, he's given a spiritual fatherhood, a spiritual paternity uh, in line with Christ. And if you think about what a priest does um, that the priest is called to represent Christ in a particular way, uh, to carry on the, the ministry of intercession, where people look at him and they see Christ himself, and he's able to carry the people to Christ and carry Christ to the people. Um, a man is much more able to do that when his life is like Christ. And this is why in the Catholic faith, we will never ordain women, because when when someone is standing at the altar and representing our Lord at the Last Supper, it it's a lot more appropriate for that to be a man doing that, like Christ was a man, than to think of a woman doing that. Um, it's nothing against women. Uh, women have have uh, very great gifts, probably greater gifts than men, in many ways. Um, but it's not about who who's good at it. Uh, it's about who can represent Christ, uh, who can stand in the place of Christ uh, with respect to his people. His people are called the body, are, are called the bride of Christ uh, in the New Testament. And so here you have a man standing in the place of Christ, representing him to the bride of Christ. Uh, it's very appropriate for that to be a man. It's also appropriate for that to be an unmarried man, a man who is committed, who has renounced mm -hmm. family for the sake of the kingdom of God, just like Christ renounced family for the sake of the kingdom of God. So we have some really good um, reasons, I think, uh, to keep celibacy uh, in the Catholic faith. I could go on and on and talk about other ones, but th those are the kind of some of the main ones yeah. in my mind for that.
I so can even though I'm a married priest, uh, I can give a witness to um, the importance of celibacy, I think, for our faith. Yeah, I consider myself in ministry, obviously, having an Apologetics podcast and being that. But at the same time, yeah, right. I'd say I'm one of those people in First Corinthians 7 where Paul would say, yeah, it's better for this guy to get married. Because mm-hmm. you know, when I was single, pretty much any girl I, I met, I was kind of going, is this going to be the person I can marry? Is this going to be the person? Right. Constantly, constantly. And now that I have a wife for nine years now, yep. it's much easier for me to focus on ministry work here. And right. I, I honestly think my ability and what I do has shot up exponentially because she's in my life. And, you know, there are some guys who just don't have any, as Paul would say, burning desire for a woman. And for them, I can understand they might want to stay single. But for some of us, right. no, that, that's not an option we want to have. Now, now St. Paul didn't consider the possibility, too, that a, mm-hmm. if you marry the right woman, mm-hmm. uh, she's going to encourage you to mm-hmm. do more for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she'll be a, a partner in ministry with you. And many, many Protestant clergy wives have yeah. that ideal and that goal and really help their their husband to do the, the work of God in the church um, uh, in, in a wonderful way. So there that, was a, uh, you know, he, she can enhance and build up uh, his ministry so that the two of them together become greater than the, than, uh, the sum of either of them apart. Um, and so uh, all of those things are, are very, very true. In the Protestant world, uh, I think it makes sense for ministers to get married because you, you, you have this idea that um, you're passing on uh, a, a knowledge and a kind of relationship with Christ personally and individually. There's not so much the sense uh, of the community gathered to receive the Eucharist and mm. that Christ is somehow really present in your midst. But in the Catholic world, um, it doesn't make sense. Uh, we, we are the church as Catholics that concretely remember who Jesus is, uh, particularly in the Last Supper. Uh, and so it makes a lot of sense for us to to um, uh, have it more properly um, men who are not married uh, to be serving our communities. I know there was a time I was speaking with for my church. We went up to an area in Cherokee, and I was asked to do some speaking there. And my wife had had a lot of back pain. I don't remember why. And so here I am speaking with church, but as far as I know, she's across the street in our room at the motel mm. there and resting up. And I'm actually speaking on love. Uh-huh. And because people saw me at week quick and said, this is a guy who can talk about married love very well. And so yeah. I'm sitting there speaking, and then all of a sudden in the back, I see the door open. And one of our friends had gone over and got my wife, and she came over and... I don't guarantee you, my face lit up immediately. Oh, wow. And I, I'm i guessing pretty much everyone in the audience could tell something has changed uh-huh. about this. I mean, it, if I'm doing a debate somewhere, one of the best things I can do is just go and look for Allie in the audience and focus yeah. on her uh-huh. and things like that. So, yeah, I, I, I do think that there could be some truthy idea that, you mm-hmm. know, 
some priest, if they have that burning desire in any way, maybe they shouldn't be priest then. Yeah. Absolutely. If, if a man cannot live in continence, that is, if he cannot abstain from sex relations mm-hmm. um, uh, successfully mm-hmm. uh, without it being a, a very, very serious trial for him, then he, he really shouldn't go into the Catholic priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of our our intake process and screening process tries to address these issues. So, mm-hmm. And there are some men that just uh, would drive themselves nuts mm-hmm. if they if they tried to live without uh, sex relations. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, But there are a lot of men that um, are able to do that, able to achieve what we call Mm -hmm. self-mastery, where they're able to live in continence. Now, remember that all Christians of any sort are called to live in chastity, continence, Mm -hmm. uh, if they're not married. Uh, And so there's a period of time in any man's life where he has to learn to master himself and not be... uh, uh, drawn to and fro by his sexual desires, or the biblical word would be by his lusts. Uh, and so, one of the great um, uh, victories for a man is to be able to confront uh, that devil in himself and to conquer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be able to say, I choose by the grace of God, when I'm going to have relations with a woman or not, and I choose uh, to do that um, in God's way, uh, in God's plan of marriage, and not to do that outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's an important preparation for marriage for a man to be able to do that. Because you know, as a married man, uh, there are a lot of times when you cannot just... uh, Give in or satisfy your desires. You not only your sexual desires, but any of your desires. You know, you yeah. you you have to live in service to another person and to, and to your children if you yeah. have them. And so you have to learn to deny yourself. Just what our Lord say said: to take up your cross and deny yourself. Uh, and marriage calls us in very practical ways to begin that path if we haven't already uh, to deny ourselves. So it's really important for a man to learn how to do that, because then he can offer to the woman that he's going to marry a strong, pure vessel that's going to help her and help him to achieve uh, true wholeness in Christ. Uh, So he can give himself to her, not out of need or necessity or not in a demanding way, uh, but in a true godly way. Yeah, I got married about a couple months before I turned 30. And mm-hmm. I was saying Shaston until then. My wife was going to turn yeah. 20 the next month, so she didn't have to wait as long as I did. But, right. but yeah. So, yep, definitely spent all my time waiting and had enough <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, in our age, we get married, I think, too late. Yeah. Most a- ages, people have gotten married sooner, and so it has been not as stressful for young people. It wasn't for lack of desire on my part, I'll say that. I'm sure. I'm sure.
Catholic, we don't really have much time to go forever on the Catholic priest thing, but I like to remind when you're listening to the Deeper Wireless podcast, we got Father Paul Soldans here talking about where we were just talking about the Catholic priest thing, and now we're going to move on to something else. So if you're here next week, you're going to hear Dead Air, because I'm going to be out in Knoxville celebrating Thanksgiving with my family, and that comes first. <laughs> but if you're here the week after that, we're going to have Bethany McKinney Fox on here, and she's going to talk about a book she released recently. Uh, this is something that's very relevant in light of what I was just talking about with part of his children, about disability and the way of Jesus. How should the church reach those in the disabled community? Now, uh, let's get back to Paul talking about the, the next topic. And I guess this kind of relates to the question of priests, because you were saying most of the cases of what happens with priests, it's of boys and it's homosexual, but geez, right. it, isn't it the case they can't really help that because, you know, they were born that way? Well, no, that's not the case. Um, I mean, it, it may be that they can't help it. Uh, it, it um, it's, it it's not often the case that any of us can just stand up and say, well, I'm just going to choose not to sin anymore, right? Yeah. We, we, often, we can get often caught in things. We can say that, it, but it probably won't last very long. Yeah. We, ca- we get caught in behaviors that master us, no matter mm. what they are, but... Mm. Um, the idea that um, homosexuality or sexual orientation is genetic, mm-hmm. that it's built in and innate, and it's not something that somebody can change, uh, is false. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a false narrative that's been put forth uh, mm-hmm. in many ways in the media, uh, and it's um, been um, pursued for political and ideological reasons. Uh, but uh, if you look at the science behind it, uh, there's no basis for it. Uh, the scientists, uh, g- uh, gay, uh, friendly scientists, have since the early 1990s tried to find a gay gene, uh, and uh, there have been a number of kind of studies that get uh, you know plastered over the front pages of the newspaper, saying, "Well, they just found the gay gene." Uh, Time magazine had a cover back in the 90s. Well, the gay gene has been found. Mm. But in fact, it wasn't found. Uh, the further research um, uh, undermines all of these claims uh, for a gay gene. Um, and over the years, um, we have looked at um, uh, the genetics of sexual orientation in a number of ways and have uh, come to the consensus uh, that homosexuality or sexual orientation has a genetic influence to it, like many um, aspects of human life, but it's certainly not determined. It's certainly not, no one's compelled uh, uh, to, to become homosexual. Um, so the, um, um, the way that this was studied up until recently was by looking at twins and comparing uh, identical twins with fraternal twins. Uh, they're, they're called monozygotic which are the identical, or the dizygotic, uh, which are fraternal. Um, and for the monozygotic twins, um, the um, uh, egg separates, so each twin has the exact same genetic makeup. They have identical genotypes. Um, and in that case, if one of them was gay, and being homosexual was 
innate genetically, then the other one should be gay too, right? Right. Identical twins, after all, if one has blue eyes, the other has blue eyes. If one has uh, blonde hair, the other one has blonde hair. They, they're identical in every way, mm-hmm. physically. Um, but, we, but research has shown that if you have identical twins and one of them is homosexual, um, only 25% of the time is the other one also homosexual. Uh, and so there's there's only a 25% concordance, as we call it, uh, for sexual orientation, even when the genes are exactly the same. So that tells us that there is a genetic influence, right? Uh, 25% is higher than you would expect by chance. Uh, only about 1% of the population is homosexual, or by more expansive measures, it might be 2 or 3%. Um, but it also tells us that it's not mostly genetic. So that's that was the state of knowledge uh, until just um, uh, a few months ago, uh, when uh, another kind of study uh, told us something more. Uh, and this kind of study doesn't look at twins. What it does is it looks at the genomes of people, because uh, since 2000, we have sequenced the human genome. And so we're able actually able to take samples uh, and to um, produce a computer file that has all of the relevant information on a person's genetic makeup. Um, and so if we compare those files of a lot of people um, and we find out from those people which ones are gay and which are not, we can see if the genetic um, makeup of those who are gay are actually similar to one another and in such a way as to be different than uh, anyone else. Uh, and we can see if, if they have a, a gene that's different than the rest of the population or not. We don't have to look at twins. We can look at the people themselves in large populations. And so that's called a genome-wide association study, or GWAS, a GWAS. Um, and the, it, there was a large GWAS that was done just last August. Uh, that looked at um, over ha- almost half a million different people uh, and um, compared them on the basis of uh, sexual orientation, uh, heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or whatever they um, reported themselves to be. And they found two very interesting things. One, they found that the, um, the genomic identity of those who had a non-heterosexual sexual orientation uh, was indistinguishable from that of anybody else. Um, that there, there was no way you could look at someone's genetic makeup and tell whether they were homosexual or not. Uh, if you didn't already know, you wouldn't be able to tell. Well, if that's the case, then you really, you really can't have a, a gene or any kind of genetic identity that's associated with being homosexual. They also found that the influence that we were talking about, the one in four um, uh, probability, uh, was not located on any particular defined part of the genome, no gene at all, uh, but it was spread across the entire genome. And there were hundreds of small markers that influenced someone uh, becoming gay or not becoming gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it confirmed that there is a um, sort of um, mild uh, or weak genetic influence on the probability of someone becoming gay. Uh, uh, or, or adopting uh, uh, same-sex attraction or behavior, but 
uh, certainly not compelled to mm. do that. Now, this is consistent with lots of other aspects of life um, that are uh, also uh, at this level of um, heritability um, that are influenced by genetic uh, factors. Uh, a lot of our beliefs, um, a lot of our uh, political affiliation, religious affiliation, uh, if you look at them genetically, uh, are are in the same class as uh, as being homosexual or not being homosexual. A lot of people have trouble um, thinking about this or wrapping their minds around this, uh, how something could be genetically influenced, um, but uh, because um, uh, a lot of times someone who is same-sex attracted or homosexual uh, will tell us that uh, they don't remember ever making a choice to do that or wanting to do that. It was just something that they discovered in themselves as they as they grew or as they became older. Um, and um, to that claim or that um, testimony, uh, uh, there are two things that I would want to say. Um, the first is that there are lots of aspects of our lives that we discover in ourselves as we grow older, that they're already built into ourselves, uh, and even ones that would be very difficult to change, but nobody thinks that these things are genetic. Um, so, for example, uh, the language that we speak you and I here today are speaking the English language. Mm -hmm. um, probably that's your mother tongue. Um, yep. And so I would say to anyone who speaks the English language, uh, when did you make a decision to start speaking the English language? Uh, is that something that you decided or, or was that something you just discovered as you matured and as you grew? Uh, and you found out that you were an English speaker. Um, and for all, almost all of us who were raised, we say, well, I discovered it. You know, I was speaking English before I knew that I had any choice at all about what language I was going to speak. Uh, and so speaking English is a matter of our early socialization. Now, I don't know anybody in the world who thinks that some people are born with a gene that compels us to speak English instead of some, some other language. Uh, we all understand that the language we speak could be very different if we were raised in a different culture or a different environment. So, so English speaking is 100% a product of our environment, but it's also something that we didn't choose and something that would be very difficult to change. If you've ever tried to learn another language, you know, if you woke up tomorrow and said, well, I, I think I want to switch to speaking Mandarin Chinese. Uh, well, you could study for years and years and try it, and maybe you could be successful. Some people could do but it wouldn't be easy to do. Mm. Um, and so it's very similar, I think, with sexual orientation. Whatever the factors are that bring someone to the point where they uh, uh, adopt or are uh, susceptible to a, a non-heterosexual sexual orientation um, are things that uh, are develop out of their early life uh, in, in ways that we may not know fully and completely. Um, there is a, a, a small, mild uh, genetic influence on, on the propensity or probability of developing these kinds of attractions. Um, and uh, it's very, very difficult to change. It's not impossible for someone to change, but it's difficult to do. 
uh, but it doesn't mean it's genetic. Mm. And it doesn't mean people have to have to do that. Now, the other thing I'd want to say to someone who says, uh, well, you know, this is the way I'm made and uh, the way God made me. I think of one of the um, presidential candidates, the one who's the mayor who is gay, and uh, he's, I, I heard or I read some statement from him saying, well, you know, this is the way God made me, so it's, you know, I, I'm just being who I am. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, w- I would want to point out that if someone is caught in a negative behavior, and according to the Bible, this is definitely a negative behavior, uh, and, and they don't feel that they can change, um, that that's something that's a quality of, of much of the sin that we engage in. Uh, sin tends to enslave the will. Uh, it tends to bind us up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we're, if we're a smoker, well, I'm not saying smoking is necessarily a sin, but it, 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 can, it can be. Um, or if we if we eat too much, or or if we um, you know uh, use like bad pornography, yeah, good example. Thank you. Or or we swear. Or we you know um, we uh, often uh, have real difficulty changing it. And there are people who will try as hard as they can, and they just can't stop. They just can't stop. They are a slave to that behavior. Uh, and I think that they will. Uh, never be able to change except for the grace of God. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus gets into someone's heart and life, mm-hmm. he can change anything. Uh, but apart from that, um, the, a person's going to be slave uh, to, to their passions. That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, and so we live in an age where uh, people put God out of the picture and then they say, well, I, I, you know, I'm the, made this way, I can't change. Um, and my response is that, yeah, you're probably right, you can't change. Uh, but there is, there is good news um, that if you want uh, a better way of living, you can find it uh, and you can change. Maybe the most important thing is not necessarily to change your sexual orientation, but in, in, as part of the whole reorientation of life, the discovery of liberation and of love that comes with Christ, uh, you can leave this... Um, attraction uh, that is is not healthy, not good for you. You can leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you talk about the whole choice thing, one yeah. example that comes to my mind when people tell me this kind of thing is my wife has PTSD from bullies in school. And I say, well, my wife has PTSD. She was not born with it. When did she choose to have PTSD? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Now, also, I'm thinking about it. Over a decade ago, the movie Bill Maher's Religious came out, uh-huh. and I, with another apologist friend, went to see it while I was in the theaters, just because, you know, that's kind of what we do. And at one point, he is interviewing someone about homosexuality, and this guy says, There is no gay gene. And then you see a mm-hmm. cut to Bill Maher interviewing Dean Hamer. So, so you found yeah. a gay gene? Yes. Right. And that's supposed to set our everything at that point. We were all supposed to fall over and surrender immediately. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And now Dean Hamer has been disproven by this subsequent research. Mm-hmm. Uh, un- unfortunately, he had a statement about it uh, trying to explain 
how it didn't disprove him, but it is quite clear that um, the the conclusion of the latest research is not only that we, we haven't found a gay gene, but that no one will ever find a gay gene. It's not possible for there to be that kind of influence, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I always wonder if, with the whole thing about a gay gene was, how exactly would it be passed on? Yeah, right. Well, that's a difficulty. It's it's been addressed in the scientific literature, uh, and it, it it it. But it is a really good point, a basic point. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they they do have sort of complex answers as to how it could be passed on. My wife also used to have this team that came to our house sometimes to give us therapy, and sometimes mm -hmm. we did talk about issues involving sex, short matters, and such. And one of the things guy said, and I agreed with this. Is that most people who are experts in fear do not think sexuality is some fixed thing. It right. tends to be fluid, that people move to right. and from along a spectrum. Right. Well, no one has ever argued that uh, female sexual orientation is genetic. Um, it, uh, that's always been seen to be very fluid uh, and changed. Um, so the question that that raises then is how is it that it can be genetic for men but not for women, uh, and may, so maybe we're talking about two different things. Um, so it it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels mm -hmm. uh, to think that it's genetic. Uh, I'm talking more and more to uh, secular media types and academic types, uh, very liberal, very progressive. Uh, who are recognizing that sexual orientation cannot be genetic uh, and that the basis for it uh, as an innate, unchangeable quali quality um, is, uh, is non-existent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that uh, over time, maybe we'll come to a better place and a better understanding mm -hmm. uh, on, this, on this topic. It would be a good thing because the premise of gay marriage, you know, is that yeah. um, homosexual people have an unchangeable nature uh, and so that the only way they can find fulfillment uh, is to marry uh, another person of the same sex um, but if that's not true if their nature can be changed then uh, then there's another way for them to find fulfillment and maybe not so much necessity to uh, twist the understanding of marriage out of, out of all recognizability uh, just to satisfy uh, uh, persons who are uh, attracted to others of the same sex. But we hear all kinds of horror stories about conversion therapy. Right. You hear them from people who are politically motivated to be opposed to changing sexual orientation. Uh, and they will attribute uh, the, these horrible kinds of therapy uh, to the uh, to uh, att attempts by persons to forcibly change the sexual orientation of other persons, as far as I know, um, that doesn't happen. Uh, uh, maybe there are some settings where it does happen or has happened in the past, uh, but what does happen today is that um, therapists will treat people in therapy and among other issues sexual orientation will come up mm -hmm. uh, and in a process of talk therapy uh, of listening to someone and helping them to see and understand 
their inner motivations and difficulties, um, they that person may uh, uh, move away from or have a lower level of compulsion, of sexual compulsion of all kinds, including uh, sexual orientation to persons of the same sex. Um, so that kind of conversion, conversion therapy, as it were, um, is something that doesn't even exist, but it's um, uh, opposed and uh, there are uh, laws being passed against it um, all across the board, at least until recently. Um, and recently, the science has gotten such that uh, it's become more and more difficult, I think, to, to justify uh, saying to people who are uh, same-sex attracted, who are struggling with homosexuality, they don't want to be homosexual, it violates their religious convictions, they want to work to live according to their religious convictions, um, I, I think there's le less and less justification in anybody's mind mm -hmm. for some persons who are committed to a gay ideology to say, well, we're, these, we're not even going to allow these people to try to change their sexual orientation. Uh, and to and to kind of stigmatize that by calling it conversion therapy or some sort of uh, horrible um, mm -hmm. uh, restrictive behavior on the part of others. Mm. Yeah. Uh, before we go on, I'd like to mind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do here is supported by people like you. Now, if you want to support us, go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you click on the link inside there, and you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've still gone to the right place. Those are the men, that, that's my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You uh, make your donation there, and being in touch with me, or Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. It will be tax-deductible. <coughs> You can also buy some e-books. One that I've written by myself, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. I do have another one in the works right now. I am working on a response to Richard Dawkins' Outgrowing God. Um, currently, I'm working on the first appendix to it. Even. That's how far, far along I am in it. I'm sure, Paul, you'd be pleased to know that that appendix arguing for the existence of God. I'm going with atomistic arguments, the ones I love the most. Mm -hmm. And uh, good Thomas here. Yeah, great. And uh, I've also got ones that I've uh, co-written, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Groundless, Groundless being a look at Dan Barker, who I debated back in March. That debate's available on YouTube. Christian Answers, Rich Generations Questions, and The Mention of Bars Project. And if you can't do any of these... Please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. Now, Paul, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yes. Uh, I, I'm a, uh, closely affiliated with an uh, organization called the Ruth Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and people can find that by going to uh, ruthinstitute.org. It's just uh, one, one word altogether. Uh, and they can find ways to um, uh, to contribute to that organization that way. The Ruth Institute uh, is committed to helping people heal and recover from the ravages of the sexual revolution 
uh, and to oppose the lies of the sexual revolution with regard to um, all of the matters that um, have to do with marriage and human sexuality. So people may have suffered uh, divorce, um, the abortion, um, the um, uh, unfulfilling uh, sexual relationships, uh, and, and many other kind of um, um, uh, conditions or difficulties that are related uh, uh, to the untruths and the lies that have been given us today about our sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's ruthinstitute.org. Love to love to have some people go there, and uh, you can sign up for the newsletter. And if you'd like to make a contribution, absolutely, it'd be great. Dr. J and I have been friends for years, and it was just earlier this year, in August seventeenth, I finally got her on my show to talk about her book, oh, Sexual State. And that's been very fruitful because that led to me getting Michelle Cortella on to talk about transgenderism and oh, Brandon Showalter to talk about tensions in the LGBT community. And that last interview, uh, sometime in the future, we're hoping to have Mary Eberstadt on to talk about Prime or Scream. So, yeah, sure. the Roof Institute Wonderful. and I have a great relationship. That's how I found out about you also. Okay, so. great. Wonderful. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here, and I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions, and over the years I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets, and I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions, and I highly recommend his program. So now getting back to the topic, I actually did in the first season, first year of his show, um, checking to make sure, yeah, it was on September 28th. I actually interviewed three ex-homosexuals, and these people mm-hmm. really do exist. And as soon as you bring one of them out, I find so many people, it's like they have to deny that these are real people. Yeah. Well, they, they weren't really homosexuals or things of that sort. Because if you have just mm-hmm. one of them, then the case of homosexuality being a fixed innate position is kind of shot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, there are not, not only there are there some uh, ex-homosexuals, um, m- most persons who at one point in their life say that they're homosexual, um, at some later point in their life, will not say that. Uh, mm-hmm. They will identify as heterosexual. And it, you look at um, population data, and I've done this uh, a number of times in uh, many different um, data sets. Uh, so you look at the pe- people who are 35 or older um, and who um, identify as uh, or say that they have sex with only persons of the opposite sex. Uh, and many, um, many surveys ask, well, uh, tell us about all of your sexual partners. Um, and so you look at how many of those reported having partners of the same sex or identified themselves as homosexual early, earlier in their life. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, it's uh, less than half, I'm trying to say this the right way, Mm. if you look at those people at age 35 who are um, heterosexual, uh, a large proportion of those 
have been homosexual or have had sex only with men at one point in their life. Mm-hmm. Or I, I should be saying it like this. If you look at all of the persons who have ever reported being homosexual or having sex only with persons of the same sex, um, of all of those persons, less than half of them are currently homosexual or currently have persons uh, have sex only with persons of the same sex. So the defection rate, you might say, from homosexual identity is well over 50%. Um, So it's not rare at all for a person uh, to leave homosexuality. Um, Of course, there's lots of reasons why they may not want to advertise that they are ex-gay or they ever were gay, uh, but they're there. uh, And they they are uh, prevalent uh, in our society. I I remember my wife and I talked to someone about her family knew who uh, who he uh, never would have thought it was true. But at one point, he left his wife and children and declared himself yeah. a homosexual and in a relationship yeah. with another man. And what amazed me so much was all these newspapers, reporters, and things saying he has found his true self. And yeah. I was asking a question. How do you know that? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a presumption there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so, you know, in Romans 1, St. Paul tells us that mm-hmm. um, people rejected God and, and tried to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Mm-hmm. And because of this, God gave them over to the, the phrase uh, in the King James, I think, is a reprobate mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a mind that in a, it, that turns backwards in on itself, um, that thinks backwards with regard to spiritual things. Uh, and so, when a person says, "Well, I've I've left uh, the sexual identity or, or the sexual attraction that God gave to me, uh, and I left the marriage." that, that uh, I committed myself to under God, which we do one time in our life, according to our Lord, ever. Uh, I left all that in, for, in order to find my true self. Um, you have to say, they're saying the exact opposite of the truth. Uh, they've got it exactly backwards, according to the Word of God. Uh, now, you may not be able to communicate that to that person at that moment, but uh, that's, that's how we have to pray. That uh, we hope that someday maybe they will find their true self and 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 be able to find their way back to um, how God has made them. One of the things that is is often un, uh, misunderstood about sexual orientation uh, is this: we think of people being homo- heterosexual to homosexual on kind of a scale, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have heterosexual folk at one end. Uh, and homosexual folk at the other end, and then in the middle there's there are people who are kind of leaning homosexual but not quite, and then in the very middle there are the bisexuals who go, go both ways and all. And, and we think of sexual orientation as being like that. But in fact, the American Psychological Association um, at research uh, has established that um, same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction uh, operate independently. Uh, in the range of a person's attractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't operate on the same scale. Uh, there's a scale of same-sex attraction. Somebody can be high or low. And there's a scale of 
opposite sex attraction, somebody can be high or low. And everybody has measurable amounts of both of these things. Mm -hmm. So nobody is entirely without attraction to persons of the opposite sex. And nobody is entirely without attractions to persons of the same sex in the right circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if somebody says, well, I'm, I'm attracted to people of the same sex, I must be homosexual. I can't have sex with persons of the, same, of the opposite sex. Um, we have to say, well, that doesn't necessarily follow. Persons who are strongly attracted to persons of the same sex. Now, mm -hmm. now in order to just not use so many words, I'm going to take the case of men, but you could say the same thing for women. So if a man is strongly attracted to men, it doesn't mean that he can't also be attracted to a woman and that he couldn't also have a relationship with a woman, um, he, even though he would also be strongly attracted to men. And in fact, uh, a lot, there are a lot of uh, men who report on national, uh, in national data that they are same-sex attracted. In fact, they'll identify as homosexual and that their primary attraction is to someone of the same sex. Most of the men who, who report that are men who are in heterosexual marriages or heterosexual relationships. Um, this is another fact that's often not uh, shared or not publicized. Mm -hmm. uh, so the homosexual population in the United States, um, uh, only a minority of them are living with persons of the same sex or having sex with persons of the same sex. There are more homosexual persons, homosexual men, who are living in marriages. Uh, now, they might be going out and doing things they shouldn't be doing I, at times. I don't know about that, but, uh, but most of them probably not. Most of them are, are like the couple of dozen men who submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the gay marriage case where they reported, uh, we are same-sex attracted men but for moral reasons and religious reasons, we have chosen to marry women, and we live in happy, heterosexual relationships and marriages with women, even though if you asked us what's your primary sexual orientation, it would be to men. Uh, so it's, it, it is not the case uh, that anyone who is homosexual, as they call it, it has to or cannot... Um, have normal, what I would call normal human relations with someone of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to mention a name here to get your comment on it, and I'd yeah. like you to say a little bit about who he is, in case some of my audience doesn't know about I would help most and would. But what do you <clears throat> think about Kinsey and his research? How has it affected our thinking about sexuality today? Well, you know, the best book on this is by Judith Reisman. It's called Kinsey, yes. Sex, and Fraud. And that mm -hmm. kind of says it all right there. Mm -hmm. uh, Kinsey uh, was in, in, engaged in a strong, uh, strongly ideological, biased, uh, distorted research that has been discredited over and over again. Uh, he, he was, by the standards that we look at things today, uh, he would be a serial abuser of children, uh, he, he paid pedophiles to take children and stimulate them to orgasm so he could measure how often they had orgasm and, and what it was like for these, these little three- and four- and five-year-old kids. I think I mean, Von Bauusack was the main one, wasn't he? 
Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's just repulsive stuff uh, to look at. Uh, and, and Kinsey, for a long time, and still today in many settings, is, is held up as this um, uh, uh, pr- progressive researcher that uh, told us all these new things about our sexuality that we didn't know. Uh, but more and more people are seeing through that. Uh, his data is uh, discredited, a joke, um, uh, and, um, uh, and, and so Kinsey has, has done a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to our culture in a lot of ways. The idea that sexual orientation is on a scale from one end to the other, from heterosexual to homosexual, originated with Kinsey. In fact, it's called the Kinsey scale. And it has really shaped and mis- misshaped, misformed mm-hmm. our understanding of our sexuality in, in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so many people just don't understand the impact Kinsey had and still has, and he's treated like gospel. And then a couple of decades later, decades later, something else probably needs to about is that homosexuality was removed from the DSM guide. Yeah. And it wasn't because new research came out, was it? No, it wasn't. It was because uh, the uh, gay uh, lobby um, uh, agitated outside the meetings and inside the meetings and... Uh, to the point where the the um, scientists uh, on the American Psychological Station just gave in uh, mm. and said, you know, for the sake of peace, we've we've got to uh, we've got to remove it. Now, initially, it was removed um, uh, at, uh, as a as a being necessarily a disorder, but it was still acknowledged that it could be a disorder. Uh, and then later on, mm. for, for the same political machinations they, they removed that it, that it could even be a disorder at all. Uh, and since um, the late 1980s, the uh, APA has had a, a committee um, uh, to um, exclude what they call heteronormative research, that is research mm-hmm. that would um, uh, value or, or put a special um, uh, emphasis on uh, the family, the heterosexual family, mm-hmm. uh, and that would even uh, use married folk as a um, comparison group uh, to gay folk, uh, because gay folk don't often the outcomes uh, for for their relationships and for their children don't look very good when you compare them with um, uh, those of man woman married couples, yeah. uh, and so they outlawed all of that. Isn't the case? think that, for instance, when Massachusetts was the first state to recognize so-called gay marriage, as I would say, that one of the first couples that showed up were divorced pretty quickly after that. Um, yeah, we don't know for sure what the rate of divorce is for um, uh, persons who have been married, uh, gay persons who have been married in the United States, but it's probably very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in um, uh, European countries that have had gay marriage for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, we have better data uh, on on their dissolution rates. The dissolution rate for same-sex couples is much much higher uh, than it is for mm-hmm. uh, heterosexual <laughs> couples. Yeah. Now, among gay couples, um, the um, lesbian couples. Uh, have higher rates of breakup than gay male couples. 
mm. overall. Uh, in heterosexual marriages, uh, women uh, tend to initiate most of the divorce actions. Mm. Uh, about two-thirds of divorces in America are initiated by the woman in the relationship. Um, and so, when two women get married, um, they, there's a much greater likelihood of them splitting up uh, or getting a divorce it, it, um, uh, for various reasons. Um, they have very high expectations for the relationship. Uh, they often um, are uh, much more sensitive to, to uh, deficiencies in their partner and, and in um, conflicts in the relationship. Um, and often when they conceive a child, uh, it creates lots and lots of stress in the relationship. Now, if you think about what, what happens when two lesbians have to conceive a child, if a man and a woman uh, who, who are married conceive a child, it happens kind of naturally. And you know that both of those persons are related to that child uh, biologically. Mm -hmm. They both have an investment in the child. It tends to draw their relationship further together, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, statistically, we know that um, uh, married couples with children are much less likely to split up or divorce than married couples without children in the United mm -hmm. States. So, but when lesbian couples uh, have a child, um, they have to be, um, uh, go through a process that does just the opposite. It doesn't draw them together. It tends to create stresses that will drive them apart. Because um, if they're going to conceive a child, um, they have to first make the decision which of the two women is going to carry the child. Who's going to be the biological mother of that child? Uh, the other woman, when that child is born, is going to be the social mother. And so they mm -hmm. often have an agreement, well, we, we'll have two children, you have the first one, I'll have the second one. And that sounds great, but when the first child comes, then that child is biologically related to only one of them, and as it grows, there become stresses. The, the social mother, as she tends to be called, uh, will feel that the child has a special relationship with her biological mother and not with the social mother. Well, you know what? The child does. It's the, it's the way that um, we're made, uh, naturally, uh, to have a greater affinity with our natural mm -hmm. biological parents. And so, the, there's stresses in the relationship. So, this is a long way, I guess, of saying that uh, lesbians tend to split up at a much higher rate when there's a child produced in the relationship. So, mm -hmm. gay male couples tend not to have that difficulty because neither one of them can conceive a child. Uh, and so they have a lower rate of divorce than lesbian couples. The rate of divorce for gay male couples is only a little bit higher, and in some in some settings maybe not at all higher than that for heterosexual married couples. But the distinctive mm -hmm. distinctive feature of gay male couples is that most of those relationships are not sexually exclusive. The right. idea of sexual fidelity uh, is not the case for most gay male couples. About half mm -hmm. of gay male couples in various studies have found that, in fact, they have explicit or written agreement um, about uh, the, the conditions under which they are permitted to have sex outside of the relationship. Uh, 
and most gay, gay male couples, one or both of them do have sex outside of the relationship. So it's something that looks um, a lot less like what we think marriage is, uh, as as uh, it, you know, in our man woman relationships. Uh, it, a man, another man, will tolerate uh, sexual infidelity to a way that a woman would would never tolerate that. Uh, mm-hmm. So these these are some of the ways in which um, uh, uh, homosexual relationships, even though they claim to be similar to marriage, are actually uh, very different than what we think about as, as uh, marriages. Yeah, I think one of the reasons for men is that usually, on the average, our sex drives tend to be much higher. And I, I had a guest on last week, and I was telling him that I think one of the things about that causes frustration in our marriages most often is that <clears throat> men, in their own way, definitely not physically, but they yeah. wish their wives were more like men. Yeah, they want them to be physically women. Yeah, they want their personalities to be men and. Wives, they're happy their husbands are physically men. They wish their personalities were more like those of women. (laughs) So a man goes and says, geez, I enjoy sex. It's free fun. It bonds me to my wife. It's just awesome. Why doesn't she want to do that more often? And then the woman's saying, why doesn't my husband just want to sit down and just talk together? And... It, it, right. both of them, it, it, it's just not in our nature. I mean, my own mother has said to me several times, and it's like, you know, Nick, I wish you just call me more often and talk. And said, Mom, I'm a guy. Guys don't <laughs> usually do that. We, we talk to convey information. Once the information <laughs> is done, we're done talking. Well, hopefully some of us can learn to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to share our lives and, mm-hmm. and sit and, yeah. and listen a, mm-hmm. a little more. Uh, it, it would be a good thing, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but you're right that we do kind of come from uh, very different orientations. Often, uh, with regard to um, sexual release, right? Men are more yeah. much more functional uh, about that, um, and uh, they, they don't need to be um, emotionally involved uh, to the extent yeah. that typically. I mean, there are always exceptions to these things, but typically, uh, women are are more invested in a, a, a relational uh, kind of exchange there. Yeah. Uh, so when you get two men together, they can be more functional and kind of understand that. Now, the the way of saying this uh, classically is to say that uh, women men will uh, give love in order to get sex, and, mm-hmm. and women will give sex in order to get love, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we have that kind of exchange. That's... That you know, that's a, a kind of hard-edged way to say it, and that there's lots of nuance there that, that that doesn't capture. But that's the basic and general idea. So when you have two men together, um, uh, both of them uh, just w- want to get sex, so they're going to give love, as it were, uh, to get that. And so the agreements that the gay males have often will specify that they can have sex outside of the relationship, so long as they don't get emotionally involved in the other men that they'll have sex with. Uh, And so they see um, cheating or infidelity in their relationship not as having sex outside the relationship, but as uh, getting close to someone outside the relationship. And so it gets really interesting how they patrol that and how that that comes together. But that's the standard that they have. And that's called uh, monogamish, right? That they'll... uh, Mm. 
they'll they'll have a um, a monogamous, an emotionally monogamous relationship, but not necessarily a sexual sexually monogamous relationship. Mm. Uh, now it's interesting that um, uh, that is also a phenomenon among heterosexual married couples. That uh, a number of uh, some of the more liberal um, uh, uh, married folk um, will also try to have a monogamish relationship uh, and um, try to maintain an emotional fidelity to one another uh, that isn't necessarily congruent with how they behave sexually. Um, mm. So, gay marriage, in a way, is just an expression of the uh, destruction or the de- devolution of marriage generally uh, in, our, in our culture and in our society. Um, if um, marriage had already not been uh, uh, degraded uh, to, to the point where today it's often temporary, where it's often uh, uh, not premised on true sexual fidelity, uh, where it's often not uh, it, something that values the children uh, that become part of that relationship. Um, that's o- where it's often not something that is uh, of eternal value and commitment. Uh, it's not done in the presence or of God or with the understanding that we're made by God. If all of those things hadn't happened to marriage, we probably wouldn't have gay marriage today because gay marriage is not at all uh, close to what uh, Christians understand marriage to be even to this day. But that's because most marriages, heterosexual marriages in our society are also not close to what we understand Christian marriage to be today. Uh, yeah, I, was, I was hearing you talk about how these couples who have an emog- a monogamish yeah. relationship you talk about with. So we'll be intimate with one another, but we just won't with other people. We just, we just won't uh, emotionally connect ourselves to them. And I'm sitting there thinking, that has to be a denial of reality entirely, because I'm, I consider myself very much unemotional. That could be part of my being on the spectrum as well. Mm-hmm. And I loved my wife when I married her, but after intimacy now, and years of having that, it's like super love, yeah. I'd say, because I, I don't think you can avoid emotionally bonding. Can you imagine choosing to enter into the, the great intimacy and and sharing that a sexual relationship can be but choosing before you do that to say i'm going to close myself off to any emotional connection with this person any serious intimacy i mean to me that is more repulsive than prostitution uh it is it is is so inhuman to even think about that um it's it's very difficult for me to conceive what kind of satisfaction anyone could get uh, out of that kind yeah. of relationship. Yeah, a, a few years ago, I saw someone. I think it might have been Shanti Feldhorn share something about uh, interviewing her husband about sex. No, actually, it was the unveiled wife who did it, mm-hmm. and she. I think she hosts part of this link up of all these interviews that. She'd done with her husband on this topic, <clears throat> and she said, Ladies, the answer is we'll surprise you. Well, I have a men's group on Facebook for Christian men, and it's meant 
when, when it was called as Christ of a Church. It's uh-huh. for Christian men who are married, engaged, dating, or hoping to date and marry, all helping us learn to be better husbands to our wives. Beautiful. And I shared this, these results in the group. And guys that comment, it's not a surprise to me. I mean, yeah. It makes more sense. Things like, you know, I... I don't have sex just because I want to release. I, mm-hmm. I want to be desired. I want to be loved. I want you to pursue me. I want you to show such interest in it. I mm-hmm. really don't care if you look like a super martyr. Things like yep. that. Most guys think, yeah, that's what we think. Yep. And women just seem to think, really? They, they don't? And you kind of like <laughs> wish you could come to kind of say, yeah, we think about this much more differently than you think. I mean, believe in that, maybe... Those pop culture TV shows, as funny as it can be sometimes, maybe they're wrong about the way men think. Oh, I think so. Especially men who are committed to a godly marriage. Um, because marriage begins with giving yourself to another person. Uh, you you yep. take what you understand of yourself and you give your life away to that person. Uh, it's an amazing thing to do. And part of that means mm-hmm. that you're gonna give, you're gonna commit yourself to that person's satisfaction. Um, you're gonna help that person to become as much like God as they can in this lifetime, to grow in holiness and virtue as much as they can. So, what does that mean when you two come together sexually? It means that your goal in that encounter is not to have sexual pleasure. Your goal is to help ensure that your partner gets the most pleasure that they can get out of that relationship. I think yeah, think about I that. Think, I think it's it, the exact yeah. opposite of what's pictured in most settings and in this is secular culture, where you say, "Well, you, you know, you're going to be unfulfilled as a person if you don't have, you know, sexual relationship. You don't have this sexual release, and you got to get good orgasms and all that stuff." But it's just the opposite. You say, "You know what? Mm-hmm. I don't care whether." I have satisfaction in this encounter. I want my partner to have satisfaction. I'm going to lay down my life for that person. And I'm oh, going to yeah. commit myself to that person. Now, what happens when you have two people meet and each of them are focused on pleasing the other to mm-hmm. the preference of themselves? You're going to have the most fulfilling, uh, joyful, uh, also pleasurable sexual encounter possible. And that's why... Highly religious couples uh, report overwhelmingly higher satisfaction and happiness with their sexual life than any other group uh, in America, not only in America, in the world. Uh, the, the people who have the best prospect of a happy, fulfilling sexual life for their entire lifetime are those who get married in, in the context of deep, committed faith in a church and their marriage partner is the first person they have ever had sex with. If those conditions are mm. fulfilled, the the um, the rates of happiness and satisfaction go off the charts. They dwarf uh, any other um, uh, population or group uh, in the country uh, because we can relate to one another. Then laying down our lives for one another, and when we do that, it, it, there is a sense of the presence of God, of transcendence, of deep meeting that goes beyond the purpose of our lives and of this world that enters into that encounter. We become 
pictures of Christ and the church, of the very relationship of the Godhead, as the New Testament tells us. Uh, and we can encounter that, and we can experience that. Um, so I, we should say to people, and I, still, I often do say to people, if you want to have really, really great sex, this is how you do it. Get to know God, abstain from cheap relationships with anyone except that person to whom God leads you to enter. To Including marriage. pornography. Yes, oh, definitely like pornography. Uh, mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to go close to that. Pornography is a, is a lie of the devil, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to twist and, and warp your brain. Uh, so, mm -hmm. to, to the point that you're not going to be able to, to uh, enter into those relationships most fulfilling. St. Paul tells us, uh, don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute, you become one with that person? And you exchange spiritual parts with every person that you ever have sex with. And so if you have sex with one person, uh, it inhibits your ability to have quite as deeply fulfilling sex with the next person. Uh, and if you come into your marriage having done that enough, you, you've just got the pieces left over. Now, God can heal that and God can restore much of that. But how much better if you come in and you're ready to experience the very best that God has from the very beginning. Uh, it's a wonderful mm -hmm. gift if we can receive it. Um, that mm -hmm. uh, we are going to have the best sex ever. Not because we're experienced, but precisely the opposite. Because we're not experienced. But we, together, yep. two of us, for the first time, unwrap this deep, intimate gift of sexuality that God has given to us, just to us. And we become the world to one another. My wife becomes every woman in the world to me, and, and we lead each other into the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, two things I'm going to say real brief. I don't want to call me on because we have to be wrapping up. But first thing is, there's a saying that he who loves many women has loved none. He who go. loves one has loved them all. Yep. And second, I can definitely attest, as a man, my greatest joy in intimacy is... Knowing I've brought my wife joy. That Amen. is the greatest joy to me. If if I don't do that, then to me it's empty. Yep. I need to bring her joy. But, Paul, we, we do have to be wrapping up here. Now, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Well, uh, P. Sullins at ruthinstitute.org. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be happy to, you know, field emails if people have any questions or comments. Um uh, I, I don't have a website uh, separate from the Ruth Institute website. They host uh, a lot of my studies mm -hmm. and my research. Um, and, um, um, yeah. And Solins is S-U-L-L-I-N-S for everyone interested. Right. Thank you for saying that. Um, right. Do you, do you have uh, any uh, final words you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Uh, I would... Um, um, Underline the fact uh, that God uh, made us male and female in His image. Uh, and despite the fact that many people think that God is trying to uh, thwart us in fulfilling our feelings and our sexual desires, uh, just the opposite is true. God is the one who invented sex. He's all for it. Uh, and He, he uh -huh. encourages us. Uh, to enjoy all of the gifts that he's made, but in the way that he's made them. It, 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 amen, right, amen. So that we can really um, uh, have our maximum enjoyment uh, of the many gifts and graces that he's given us here in this life. 
Well, Paul, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Maybe it, like next year when I suggest if I do uh, something on Reformation Month and you can have a good discussion for Protestant about Catholicism versus Protestantism. I would love that. Thank you, Nick. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next time we meet in two weeks, we're going to have Bethany McKinney Fox talking about her book, Disappearing the Way of Jesus. For now, I'm Nick Peters. I'm signing off, and I affirm a virgin birth. Amen. <laughs>